Arouse thyself, O my soul, and stir up thine understanding, and consider so far as thou canst what and how great is this good. For if particular things are delightful, consider earnestly how delightful must be that good which comprehendeth the pleasantness of all particular goods, and that in a pleasantness not such as we have known by experience in things created, but surpassing that no less than the Creator surpasseth the creature. For if the life that is created be good, how good must be the life that createth? If health that is made be pleasant, how pleasant must be that health that is the cause of all health? If the wisdom be desirable that consisteth in the knowledge of things created, how desirable must be that wisdom that wrought all things of nothing? Lastly, if there be many great delights in things delightful, what manner of delight and how great must be these in him? who made those very things themselves that are so delightful. Oh, who shall enjoy this good? And what shall he have? And what shall he lack? Surely whatsoever he wisheth, he shall have. And whatsoever he wisheth not, he shall be without. For there shall be goods of body and of soul, such as eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man to conceive. Why then, poor child of man, dost thou wander hither and thither, seeking the goods of thy soul and body. Love the one good, wherein are all goods, and it sufficeth thee. Set thy desires upon the uncompounded good, which is all good, and it is enough. For what dost thou love, O my flesh? What dost thou desire, O my soul? If beauty delight thee, the righteous shall shine forth as the sun. If swiftness of strength or freedom of body, which nothing may hinder, they are as the angels of God. Because it is so in a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Spiritual, that is, in powers, not in nature. If a long life of health, there is an eternity of health. For the righteous live forevermore, and the health of the righteous cometh of the Lord. If abundance, they shall be satisfied when the glory of God shall appear. If drunkenness, they shall be made drunken with the plenteousness of God's house. If melody, there shall the choirs of angels sing together unto God forever and ever. If any pleasure, so be it but chaste, thou shalt give them drink of thy pleasures as out of the river. If wisdom, the very wisdom of God shall manifest itself to them. If friendship, they shall love God above themselves and one another as themselves. And God shall love them more than they love themselves, for they shall love him and one another in him and he shall love himself and them in himself. If concord, they shall all have one will, for they shall have no will but God's will only. If power, they shall be almighty to do their own wills, even as God to do his. For as God shall be able to do what he willeth through his own power, so shall they be able to do what they will through his power. Since, as they will nothing else but what he wills, so he shall will whatsoever they will and whatsoever he willeth cannot but be. If honors and riches, God shall set his good and faithful servants over many things. Yea, they shall be called sons of God and gods, and where his son shall be, there also they shall be, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If true security, certainly they shall be as sure that those goods, or rather the good, shall never in no wise fail them, as they shall be sure that they will not lose it of their own free will and that God their lover will not take it against their wills from them that love him, and that nothing mightier than God will separate God from them against their wills. 
but one manner of joy, and how great a joy must there be, where there is such and so great a good. O thou human heart, thou hungry heart, thou heart acquainted with sorrow, nay, overwhelmed by sorrow, how wouldst thou rejoice if thou didst abound in all these goods? Look into thine heart, and ask whether it could contain the greatness of the joy which it would have did it possess so great happiness. Yet surely, if another whom thou didst love altogether as well as thyself were to have the same happiness, thy joy would be doubled, since thou wouldst rejoice with him no less than for thyself. But if two, or three, or many more should have the same happiness, thou wouldst rejoice as much for each as for thyself, didst thou love each as thyself. Therefore, in that perfect mutual love of innumerable blessed angels and men, where none loveth another less than himself, each will rejoice no less for every other than for himself. If, then, the heart of man can scarce contain the joy he will have in himself in one enjoyment of so great a good, how shall it be capable of so many and so great joys? And since every man rejoiceth in the good of any in proportion as he loveth him, as in that perfect felicity, every one will love God beyond all comparison, more than he loves himself and all his fellows. So will he rejoice beyond all measure, more in the felicity of God than in his own and that of all his fellows. But if they so love God, with their whole heart, their whole mind, their whole soul, yet so that the whole heart, the whole mind, the whole soul, shall not suffice to the excellence of the love, it will follow that they shall so rejoice with their whole heart, their whole mind, their whole soul, that their whole heart, their whole mind, and their whole soul shall not suffice to the fullness of their joy. O oh, my God and my Lord, my hope and the joy of my heart, tell my soul, if this be the joy whereof thou sayest unto us by thy Son, ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. For I have found a joy that is full, and more than full. For when heart and mind and soul and the whole man are full of that joy, yet shall the joy abound yet more beyond measure. Therefore that joy shall not wholly enter into them that rejoice therein, but they that rejoice shall wholly enter into that joy. Tell, O Lord, tell thy servant inwardly in his heart, if this be the joy whereinto thy servant shall enter, who shall enter into the joy of the Lord. But assuredly that joy wherein thine elect shall rejoice, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man. And so I have not yet uttered or conceived, O Lord, the greatness of the joy of thy blessed ones. For their joy shall be as great as their love, and their love as their knowledge. How great shall be their knowledge of thee, O Lord, and how great their love of thee! Surely in this life I hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive the greatness of their knowledge and love of thee in the life to come. I pray thee, O God, let me know thee and love thee, so that I may rejoice in thee. And if I cannot know thee, love thee, rejoice in thee fully in this life, let me go forward from day to day, until that knowledge, love, and joy at last may be full. Let the knowledge of thee grow in me here, and there be made full. Let the love of thee increase in me here, and there be full. O Lord, by thy Son thou dost command, nay, counsel us to seek, and dost promise to accept us, that our joy may be full. I seek, O Lord, that which by thy wonderful counsellor thou counsellest us to seek. I will accept that which thou dost promise by thy truth, that my joy may be full. O thou faithful God, I seek. 
Grant that I may receive, that my joy may be full. Meanwhile, may my mind meditate thereon, may my tongue talk thereof, may my heart love it, my mouth utter it, my soul hunger after it, my flesh thirst after it, my whole substance long for it, until I enter into the joy of the Lord. Three persons in one God, blessed forevermore. Amen. So, as we saw last time, Norman Malcolm thought that the origin of the ontological argument, or the genesis of the concept of God, is closely related to the experience of an infinitely heavy conscience. Out of a need for infinite forgiveness, humans project or otherwise develop the idea of an infinite, unlimited being who can forgive their infinite guilt. Despite the admittedly tentative and speculative nature of Malcolm's observation, it should be clear that there are problems with it which we should not overlook even if we resonate with Malcolm's words about feeling guilty. Malcolm speaks of the experience of infinite guilt creating the need for infinite forgiveness, but he seems unaware in his essay that infinite guilt makes sense only against the backdrop of an infinite being, not vice versa. In a number of traditional Christian theologies, say that of the Roman Catholic Church, or perhaps Reformed or Calvinist theology, human sin is as bad as it is because it is an offense against the infinite majesty of God. Being finite creatures who can only act in a limited number of ways for a limited number of years, humans could not possibly sin infinitely unless it was against an infinite being, like God. Human sins against each other are not infinite, they are ordinary transgressions, which is why God's infinite forgiveness for the offense against himself that Christians believe is made possible through the atonement of Jesus, can cover all of a person's lesser sins as well as their transgressions against each other. It is part of why some Christians believe in what we might call third-party forgiveness, in which God, either through his own power or the efficacy of the church, can absolve someone of sins even if they haven't apologized or made reparation to anyone beside God. The point is simply that Malcolm appears to be assuming a Christian view of sin, rather than demonstrating it. This is often a critique of Swansea Wittgensteinians. As the Catholic Wittgensteinian and Dominican priest Gareth Moore once observed, sometimes what these philosophers put forward as unbiased philosophical observation in fact harbors their own religious sensibilities, which are vestigially Christian and often Protestant or heterodox. Malcolm is of course right that it is possible to feel unbearably guilty or ashamed of something when it's done, or even a fact about oneself, like a mental illness, an addiction, or perhaps one's sexual orientation. But it's just not clear that without the prior belief in God's infinite majesty, not to mention judgmentalness, that one should describe their unbearable guilt or shame as truly infinite. And none of this is to deny that one's guilt or shame can still be psychologically intolerable, even if only finite. In associating God with guilt, Malcolm also makes it appear that the idea of God is at rock bottom an intensely negative emotional reaction to the world, or oneself, and though he claims to be deeply respecting religious believers, arguably portrays belief in an infinite God as a psychological defense mechanism against one's own inadequacies. Malcolm probably did not entirely intend this effect, but if we take a hint from Wittgenstein, we too can describe what we see in Malcolm's writing, without trying to justify it. It is perhaps not unrelated that Anselm himself was instrumental in developing the Western Christian doctrine of substitutionary atonement, the belief that it was in order to absolve the infinite guilt of the human offense against God, and thereby restore God's insulted honor, that Jesus had to suffer and die as a sacrifice to God. 
But as I hope to show through my reading of the final chapters of Anselmus Proslogion, and in the remainder of this episode, there is another, more positive way to understand the genesis of the concept of an infinite god. It can be found both in Anselmus Proslogion and in Wittgenstein's own mystical experiences. On November 17, 1929, Wittgenstein was invited by C.K. Ogden to give a paper to the Cambridge Society called The Heretics an informal intellectual group co-founded by Ogden to discuss problems of religion and philosophy. Wittgenstein told by his audience, by way of a prefatory remark, that if he was going to give them a lecture, he did not want to waste it on teaching something like logic, which would require numerous sessions. Instead, Wittgenstein was keen on communicating to them a matter of general importance, and moreover, he hoped his lecture would help his audience clear up their own thoughts on the lecture subject, even if they disagreed with Wittgenstein's views. The lecture Wittgenstein gave was the famous Lecture on Ethics, the only public lecture to a general audience Wittgenstein ever gave, and moreover, one of the only pieces which Wittgenstein originally composed in English. The Lecture on Ethics is somewhat misleadingly titled. Wittgenstein states early on that he uses the word ethics in an intentionally broad sense to capture also what he believed to be essential about aesthetics. Remember that in the Tractatus, Wittgenstein had somewhat confusingly stated, at Proposition 6.421, that ethics and aesthetics are one, as well as that they are transcendental and that they cannot be expressed. This might seem rather odd for a number of reasons. At a colloquial level, many people associate ethics with professional ethical codes and regulations and law. In the schema of professional academic philosophy, particularly among Anglo-analytic philosophers, ethics and aesthetics are different areas, with ethics being closely related to moral philosophy, and aesthetics being closely related to philosophy of art. You might think that paragons of ethics include volunteers, humanitarians, people like Mother Teresa, while artists and musicians stereotypically live wayward, self-absorbed lives. But ethics and aesthetics are clearly not so distantly related. Both have to do with values, and deal with evaluative judgments, criteria, and comparison. The ancient Greeks famously did not draw a linguistic distinction between goodness and beauty, and though they had a word for both, to agathon and to kalon respectively, used them interchangeably. But that is discussion for another day. At the beginning of his lecture, Wittgenstein says that a number of formulas capture what he is trying to talk about. While the philosopher G. E. Moore, one of Wittgenstein's friends, defined ethics as the inquiry into what is good, Wittgenstein adds that in his sense we could change the words as follows. Ethics is the inquiry into what is valuable. Or, ethics is the inquiry into what is really important. Or, ethics is the inquiry into the meaning of life. Or, into what makes life worth living. Or, into the right way of living. Next, Wittgenstein notes that for each of these descriptions of value, there are two ways in which people seem to use them, a relative and an absolute sense. Relative value is easier to explain, so we'll start with that. To say that something is good, relatively speaking, is to say that it is good relative to some purpose, goal, or outcome. A good chair is sturdy. A good knife is sharp. A good musician is a musician who can play a given range of pieces correctly and displays a certain level of skill in playing their instrument. Similarly, importance depends on what one cares about. If it is important to you that you make a lot of money, you should probably stop studying philosophy and pick a lucrative career. 
If it's important to you that you not get the coronavirus, you should practice social distancing as much as possible, perhaps wear a mask outside, wash your hands, not touch your face, and so on. Relative value is relative to some standard that, importantly, always turns out to be a state of affairs or given number of facts. Relative value is also contingent in another sense, in that the standards we use to evaluate it are always up for negotiation. You don't need to be a classical guitarist to learn to strum a few chords. And, if all you want to be able to do is to play a few popular or religious songs, you probably don't need to train at a conservatory. Both the expert and the amateur can be good musicians relative to their goals. The same goes for ascriptions of rightness. The right road, or path to something, depends entirely on one's destination. Wittgenstein's remarks on rightness are reminiscent of the Cheshire Cat's advice in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. The cat only grinned when it saw Alice. It looked good-natured, she thought. Still, it had very long claws and a great many teeth, so she felt that it ought to be treated with respect. Cheshire Puss, she began, rather timidly, as she did not at all know whether it would like the name. However, it only grinned a little wider. "'Come, it's pleased so far,' thought Alice, and she went on. "'Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here?' "'That depends a good deal on where you want to get to,' said the cat. "'I don't much care where,' said Alice. "'Then it doesn't matter which way you go,' said the cat. "'So long as I get somewhere,' Alice added as an explanation. "'Oh, you're sure to do that.' said the cat, if you only walk long enough. Alice felt that this could not be denied, so she tried another question. What sort of people live about here? In that direction, the cat said, waving its right paw round, lives a hatter. And in that direction, waving the other paw, lives a march hare. Visit either you like. They're both mad. But I don't want to go among mad people, Alice remarked. "'Oh, you can't help that,' said the cat. "'We're all mad here. I'm mad, you're mad.' "'How do you know I'm mad?' said Alice. "'You must be,' said the cat, "'or you wouldn't have come here.'" Like Alice, you may sometimes worry that your life is going in the wrong direction. But then, you have to ask yourself what a right direction for a life would look like. Remember at this point in Wittgenstein's philosophy, if it's possible to get it wrong, then it must be possible to get it right. At Proposition 6.5 in the Tractatus, Wittgenstein wrote, For an answer which cannot be expressed, the question too cannot be expressed. The riddle does not exist. If a question can be put at all, then it can also be answered. Of course, a person's life is not a proposition. It's not even clear what it would mean to try to understand one's life as a statement which had meaningful content and could turn out to be true or false. Nevertheless, Wittgenstein's point about riddles should be clear enough. If your life seems like a frustrating and enigmatic riddle to you, that is probably because you have no clear idea of what would count as success or failure in your life. In terms of relative value, value is always relative to a factual standard that can be confirmed or disconfirmed. So one upside to this way of looking at life is that even if you are afraid your life is going the wrong way, all you need for it to start going the right way is to decide on some measurable and concrete criteria for what it would mean for it to go right. And hard enough though this may sound, 
It need be no harder than making some decisions about what you actually care about, what is important to you, and for what reasons. But of course, this is where things get sticky. For Wittgenstein does not think that ethical ascriptions of values, like goodness, work like this. Rather than being relative to a negotiable standard or contingent outcome, Wittgenstein thinks that, morally speaking, one cannot change moral value by changing your mind about what matters to you. In the lecture on ethics, Wittgenstein frames the problem like this. Suppose that I could play tennis, and one of you saw me playing and said, Well, you play pretty badly. And suppose I answered, I know I'm playing badly, but I don't want to play any better. All the other man could say would be, Ah, then that's all right. But suppose I told one of you a preposterous lie, and he came up to me and said, You are behaving like a beast. And then I were to say, I know I behave badly, but then I don't want to behave any better. Would he then say, Ah, then, that's all right. Certainly not. He would say, Well, you ought to want to behave better. Here you have an absolute judgment of value, whereas the first instance was one of a relative judgment. As I mentioned in a previous episode, for the early Wittgenstein, absolute value seems to have about it an air of necessity. In terms of relative value, relative goodness, relative importance, and so on, it seems to be as Hamlet said, nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. By contrast, the absolutely right road to a goal would, Wittgenstein thinks, be a road which upon seeing it, everybody would with logical necessity feel compelled to follow or ashamed of not following it. And similarly, absolute good, assuming it was a describable state of affairs in the world, would be a state of affairs which everybody, independent of their tastes and inclinations, would want to bring about, and would feel morally guilty for not bringing about. It's worth noting at this point that though the scope of the influence is debatable, and, as I've argued at an academic conference before, Wittgenstein was influenced by the religious philosophy of Immanuel Kant. At least, Wittgenstein and Kant seem to have interesting similarities in their thought on religion, whether this is because of Wittgenstein's influence from Schopenhauer or Kierkegaard. Remember that for Kant, the ultimate object, though not the motive, of morality is bringing about the ideal of the highest good. The idea of the highest good is not only a state of affairs, but literally a kind of world in which, regardless of people's subjective differences and life goals, moral virtue is a necessary cause of enduring happiness in a way that it is not in this world. Both Kant and Wittgenstein agree that such a state of affairs does not in fact obtain in this world. But whereas Kant thought that the bringing about of the highest good was achievable only through the intervention of God in the context of the unfolding of the endless duration of history and the afterlife, Wittgenstein, in the lecture on ethics, does not think that the absolute good was achievable at all. Because as we've seen before, the good is beyond the space of facts, beyond all suchness and being so. Absolute value seems to pose an ill-formed riddle. What is the content or sense of absolute value? What does absolute value indicate or point to? Remember that Wittgenstein held that since all propositions stand on the same level, there are no propositions that are intrinsically sublime or express anything higher than facts of the world. For that reason, there can be no science, no system of propositional knowledge, of ethics, expressed in a body of true propositions. In the lecture, Wittgenstein goes on, Ethics, if it is anything, is supernatural, and our words will only express facts, as a teacup will only hold a teacup full of water, even if I were to pour out a gallon over it. 
Nevertheless, there is something important about this idea of ethics overflowing the boundaries, or teacup, of language. It offers us a glimpse of where certain ideas, like the idea of an absolute or infinite God, might come from. What do we have in mind if we try to make an absolute judgment? Wittgenstein thinks that what we are trying to, but cannot get at when we try to speak in absolute terms, are certain paradigm experiences. Wittgenstein gives three such experiences which he grants will likely differ from person to person. These are three experiences which Wittgenstein himself claims to have had, and they constitute what we may call Wittgenstein's paradigmatic, mystical experiences. Not because they resemble the supernatural or extraordinary experiences of so-called religious mystics, but because they are related to Wittgenstein's sense of the mystical. The first paradigm experience is the feeling of wonderment at the world, expressed in such utterances as, how extraordinary that the world should exist. We've already looked at this experience in a good bit of detail in a previous episode, and it should be clear that the experience of wondering at the world from the transcendental point of view, subspecie aeterni, gives rise to the mystical feeling. The third experience is the experience of profound guilt, which Malcolm alludes to. But the second, and perhaps most interesting for our present purposes, is what Wittgenstein calls absolute safety. He writes, I will mention another experience straight away, which I also know, and which others of you might be acquainted with. It is what one might call the experience of feeling absolutely safe. I mean the state of mind in which one is inclined to say, I am safe, nothing can injure me, whatever happens. In a future episode, I will discuss one of the likely origins of this experience for Wittgenstein, Witnessing the play Die Kreuzlerscheiber by the Austrian playwright Ludwig Anzengruber, it was this play, according to Norman Malcolm's memoir of Wittgenstein, that caused Wittgenstein to begin taking religion more seriously than he had as a young man. For now, it should not escape notice that the idea of being absolutely safe appears to be related to the Christian experience of salvation. The philosopher Michel Berlet has remarked that, once again, this experience of Wittgenstein's is reminiscent of the showings of Julian of Norwich, who believed that she was told by Jesus that regardless of the pain caused by sin, somehow all shall be well. After this the Lord brought to my mind the longing that I had to him afore, and I saw that nothing letted me but sin. And so I looked generally upon us all, and methought, If sin had not been, we should all have been clean and like to our Lord, as he made us. And thus in my folly, afore this time often I wondered why, by the great foreseeing wisdom of God, the beginning of sin was not letted, for then, methought, all should have been well. This stirring of the mind was much to be forsaken, but nevertheless mourning and sorrow I made therefore without reason and discretion. But Jesus, who in this vision informed me of all that is needful to me, answered by this word and said, It behoved that there should be sin, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. In this naked word sin, our Lord brought to my mind generally all that is not good, and the shameful despite and the utter naughting that he bare for us in this life, and his dying, 
and all the pains and passions of all his creatures, ghostly and bodily. For we be all partly naughted, and we shall be naughted following our master Jesus till we be full purged, that is to say, till we be fully naughted of our deadly flesh, and of all our inward affections which are not very good. And the beholding of this, with all pains that ever were, or ever shall be, and with all these I understand the passion of Christ for most pain and overpassing. All this was showed in a touch, and quickly passed over into comfort, for our good Lord would not that the soul were afeared of this terrible sight. But I saw not sin, for I believe it hath no manner of substance, nor no part of being, nor could it be known but by the pain it is cause of. And thus pain, it is something as to my sight for a time, for it purgeth, and maketh us to know ourselves, and to ask mercy. For the passion of our Lord is comfort to us against all this, and so is his blessed will. And for the tender love that our good Lord hath to all that shall be saved, he comforteth readily and sweetly, signifying thus, It is sooth that sin is cause of all this pain, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. These words were said full tenderly, showing no manner of blame to me, nor to any that shall be saved. Then were it a great unkindness to blame or wonder on God for my sin, since he blameth not me for sin. And in these words I saw a marvellous high mystery hid in God, which mystery he shall openly make known to us in heaven, in which knowing we shall verily see the cause why he suffered sin to come, in which sight we shall endlessly joy in our Lord God. While the experience of wondering at the world is related to what it means for people to say that God created the world, Wittgenstein says that the experience of absolute safety has been described by saying that we feel safe in the hands of God. However, neither of these expressions, Wittgenstein argues, can be literally true in the truth-bivalent way the propositions are true. Wittgenstein says, In every such case I wonder at something being the case which I could conceive not to be the case. To say I wonder at such and such being the case has only sense if I can imagine it not to be the case. But it is nonsense to say that I wonder at the existence of the world, because I cannot imagine it not existing. The same goes for absolute safety. Of course we can be safe in relative terms. For example, we can be relatively safe from the coronavirus if we stay indoors and do not come into contact with infected objects or people. But it is impossible to be safe no matter what happens. If being safe in the hands of God doesn't necessarily mean that you aren't still going to suffer and live a hard, ultimately unfulfilled and quickly forgotten life, of what value is God's safety? We will, of course, one day return to this question. On one final note, it is important to remember that Wittgenstein only claims that the verbal expression we give to these paradigm experiences is nonsense. Nonsense is not the same as falsehood. The German word for nonsense that Wittgenstein uses elsewhere to describe the mystical beyond the boundary of the world is Unsinn, literally, lacking sense or meaning. 
and this is not surprising, given that whatever lies beyond the bounds of sense lacks propositional content. Had Wittgenstein meant to disparage the mystical, like a positivist, he would probably have used unding, or schwachsinn, in other words, absurdity, self-contradiction, or straight-up bullshit. This is consistent with how Wittgenstein ends the lecture. At the very end, he writes, Ethics, so far as it springs from the desire to say something about the ultimate meaning of life, the absolute good, the absolute valuable, can be no science. What it says does not add to our knowledge in any sense. But it is a document of a tendency in the human mind which I personally cannot help respecting deeply, and I would not for my life ridicule it. Despite his chastening of metaphysical uses and abuses of language, the early Wittgenstein, in some of his more mystical moods, as well as more conventional religious mystics, seems to have suspected and suggested that the full sense of reality likely exceeds the representational capacities of human concepts, even if these concepts are otherwise useful. After all, it would be surprising if human concepts had an other-than-human origin. What does this have to do with Norman Malcolm, the ontological argument, and having a heavy conscience? Well, remember that our objection to Malcolm sprang from the fact that whether intentionally or unintentionally, he represents the origin of the idea of an infinite god, and perhaps other infinite qualities, as the projection of a perceived need and desired release from a heavy conscience. As we saw, it is true that moral guilt is one of the paradigm experiences that resemble the mystical feeling that leads us to talk nonsense. In the early notebooks and Tractatus, Wittgenstein went as far as to say that conscience is the voice of God, but he barely treats the experience of guilt at all in his lecture on ethics, which, as we've seen, is a lecture on the meaning of life, and what really matters, and so forth. Far more central for Wittgenstein is the experience of feeling safe in the hands of God, whatever this means, if it means anything. And here, this feeling of security, one might even be tempted to say salvation, is not a projected need, but a felt experience. Some have argued that Anselm's ontological argument is not merely comprised of chapter 2, or even chapter 3, of Proslogion, but rather that the Proslogion should be viewed as one seamless whole. The argument, so this line of reasoning goes, should have a cumulative effect. After all, what Anselm purports to want to prove in the preface to Proslogion is not simply that God, as that than which nothing greater can be conceived, actually exists outside the mind, but that this infinite God also has all the qualities and characteristics that Christians believe God to have, a considerably heftier task than is usually attributed or credited to Anselm. If one reads all the way through Proslogion to its final three chapters, the chapters we open the episode with, I would argue that Anselm is in fact presenting us with another paradigmatic mystical experience, the experience of what we can only call absolute joy. And I would also argue that like Wittgenstein, Anselm is not attempting to, nor successfully establishing, that such an absolute joy exists, but that the only way we could have any idea, however vague, of what the ineffable and inconceivable joy of heaven is like, as Plato would say, on the other side of the sky, is to think about the contingent, empirically expressible experiences of what we enjoy on earth in our own lives. If you enjoy beauty and light, then heaven will be beautiful and shining. If you enjoy moving your body, perhaps by playing sports, exercising, or dancing, then nothing will hinder your freedom of movement, such as a bit of extra weight. Although you will not literally be an immaterial spirit, since you are an embodied human being, 
you will have all the powers that angelic spirits have. If you're into health and longevity, then you'll be as healthy and long-lived as you like. No more blood pressure medications or anti-gas relief. If you come from a hard background, where you were always scrounging for an existence, working two or three jobs, on the other side of the sky, there will always be enough to eat, and no bills, tuition, or late fees. If you enjoy music, heaven will be the greatest concert ever played. Anselm even goes further to appeal to drunkenness. If you like a good drink, or a few too many, as long as you can actually get there, in heaven you can be drunk on joy in God as much as you like, or perhaps as high as heaven. Any pleasure can be purified and magnified. Anselm is not engaging in false advertising here. He is not saying that in the sky somewhere, one day you can finally enjoy that drunken orgy with God's approval. What Anselm is doing is giving us images for the purposes of comparison. The point is not that you will be a shredded, smoothie-drinking musician who has your pick of whichever sex you find fairer. The point is that the only reference point you have for what the joy of heaven will mean are things you enjoy now. And that is completely okay. God is not a sadist, though he is not a hedonist either. In the same way that Anselm defines God as that in which no greater can be conceived, you might say that he defines heaven as a joy than which no greater can be conceived. But this is not all, for Anselm is not a solipsist. It is all well and good that if you can get to heaven you will have whatever your purified heart desires, but your joy will be augmented by the fact that other people also have what they desire. Heavenly happiness is infectious, and even God will be affected by it. Anselm seems to think that the joy of heaven will be raised to the power of however many people get to heaven. It's not long, then, before this vector breaks through to infinity. And not only infinity, but an infinity of infinities. The joy of the Lord, like the Lord's self, is literally inconceivable, so it isn't even accurate to suggest that you will have joy inside of you. Rather, it is you who will be inside of joy. This reminds me of one of the ways to say, I am overjoyed in German. Ich bin außer mir vor Freude. I am outside of myself for joy. Once more, the purpose of this episode was not to agree with or corroborate Anselm's argument, but to get a different perspective, to approach it from a different angle. Whereas Malcolm believed that the value of the ontological argument was in showing that God's reality is unlike other kinds of reality, in that, unlike other concepts, God's necessary existence is one of his internal properties, I have tried to show that another fruitful way of understanding the argument is that it is, as Wittgenstein says, a document of a tendency in the human mind, the tendency to go out of oneself with joy. It may be that this joy causes us to babble nonsense. People are typically at a loss for words when they are experiencing great pleasure, and so, Anselm's argument may have more in common with a sigh of relief or a cry of ecstasy than a mathematical equation, as Malcolm thought. We will continue approaching, in Wittgensteinian fashion, the ontological argument from different angles for the next couple of episodes. But until then, this has been Faith in the Flybottle. Oh,